a new beginning. New beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black, and this is a special episode that really hits close to home. Really happy to do this one because we have on today Dr. Black's mother. Yes, her name is Julie Rennie, and she has done accounting and income tax for most of her career, primarily as a self-employed individual, and currently runs a law practice as a licensed paralegal out of Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Julie married Mark Black, Joshua's father, in 1977, spending the next few decades as Julie Black. The positive blessings and outcomes from this marriage were building her faith in God and being a mother to her four children, Rebecca, Nathaniel, Joshua, and Rachel. The marriage suffered challenges based on Mark's excessive consumption of alcohol and poor coping skills. After the marriage ended, Julie remarried John Rennie. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Well, hello. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here speaking with you. Hi, Mom. <laughs> yeah, hey, gosh. Hey. I was wondering if I should be calling you Dr. Dr. Black, Dr. Hey, Joshua Black. That is an interesting question. I haven't really <laughs> thought about that too much, but you're welcome to feel free to use that or what you normally call me, which is Josh. Hey, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's amazing for you to have come on. Thank you for this because you're going to be the first person in my family to have come on. And so I think it's, you know, we've been doing this four years now, uh, me and Sean. And yeah, we just never really thought too much of, you know, let's bring on other people because there's no one really I know that have really had grief dreams in the family. Um, I know some a little bit recently, which is mm -hmm. interesting. I'm um, like uh, my aunt uncle and cousin has all had uh these dreams but like no one like uh, my brothers or sisters um and i don't believe you had either but i think this is a great opportunity to just chat about your losses that you have had and really you know piece apart that because i don't think as much as i do a lot of this stuff we haven't talked too much about your grief as much as i think i would want to know and so why not do it on air you know <laughs> why not let's i know i asked why some questions <laughs> here and there but like the more you think about it the more you realize wow like there's a lot of parts of your life i probably don't know about because i know about like mm -hmm. dad a little bit but even then um i i gained a lot of my awareness of um, my compassion towards other people's losses after he died and mm -hmm. so then like there's only been one person after he's died that that has passed and then we talked a little bit about with your father and so we'll get into all that so first of all i want to thank you for being a supporter of everything that we're doing here on the podcast how does it feel to to sort of even just see the podcast be what it is and even to see me do something in a world of grief it's it's an amazing feeling um I, I would I was really, really surprised to see that you have hundred and sixty five podcasts now. I hadn't listened for a little while. Things just got busy and we've moved twice in the last few years and I tend to do more than I should with my time. So I haven't listened, so I'm listening backwards. <laughs> so um I started with Jane Edberg and I've been working back and listened to Flora. Uh, well, the new one, Flora Baker. So I, I'm really impressed there. I didn't know anything about dreams. Nobody, you know, as I was growing up, knew anything about dreams. So it was never talked about. And this has been a 
truly illuminating time for me to to follow along with what you're doing and to be introduced to the the subject um, and to realize that it is a part of us and that we should be paying attention to it because as you say it's a reflection oftentimes of our waking life and you know I never I didn't think I remembered my dreams but if I had known way back um, to to have a dream journal then maybe I'd have more to actually discuss <laughs> I'd have more input um, if I had written it down and I do dream but most of them I lose because I can't or don't write them down immediately. I don't get up and write it down. Um, and that's something I've bought a little red um, coil book that, you know, my next dream, I can start entering, you know, get up and write it, write it down. Yeah. So that no, wasn't I... exactly the question you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really answering that one. Um, was it to do with your dad? Uh, no, I was just wondering did you see your thoughts on seeing me in this field? Because I know oh, okay. growing up, I wanted to be like a basketball star or elementary school's teacher. And like this came really out of left field for the most part. And even yeah, dreams I... itself, because like we never said like in our family, we never talked about it. We never thought it was important. Yeah. If anything, I remember I was having a lot of nightmares as a kid. And you know, dad and I, I think you too would both say they're from the devil or or make that assumption to try to calm me down because I was just, you know, disheveled. From, Wait, because from... we didn't know. We we yeah. had no idea what to say to you. Um... <laughs> hey, you got to say something. Might as well use that, right? <laughs> <laughs> try to say something barely intelligent. <laughs> That's why I was leaning towards your, your dad when I was asking what I was supposed to be talking about. This is going way, way back. I was recalling. Um, we saw a movie in 1983 called War Games. I can't tell you the whole story, but the key was the password to this computer program, and it, it meant world safety. So it turned out the password, the key to being able to stop um, this disastrous event happening, the password was actually Joshua. So from that point on, I was at that point pregnant, maybe six months pregnant, but from that point on, we knew, your dad knew, that your name was going to be Joshua, whereas when Rebecca was born, we named her a week after she was born. But with you, with Joshua, we knew back, you know, months before that you were supposed to be Joshua. And when I look at it now, you know, Joshua being the keyword, well, you're opening the whole field of grief dreams to people and dreams in general to people. So uh, I, I grin at that because that's just amazing. That's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> and it's kind of, <laughs> it's nice to know too, like I always, you know, we ask people too on the podcast why, uh, why they name their kids certain things. And it's kind of cool. Like you just knew that was supposed to be my name. Or dad mm -hmm. knew and something, and so that's it's kind of cool to, to sort of have that. And I know Joshua's also a name in the Bible that yes. I'm guessing had to, since everyone else came from the Bible, right? <laughs> Nathaniel, Rebecca, <laughs> yes, <right>? true. <laughs> so I think it's two things combined really helped out with the uh, the naming process. <laughs> yes. 
you know that and that's um it's interesting you brought that up and you know your experience is pretty common uh julie in terms of awareness around dreams like you know even myself i'm just thinking back you know five years before we even started this i had the same amount of knowledge about dreams and a very similar experience whereas my parents are pretty religious christian and i actually remember when i had nightmares my mom would have me put a bible under my pillow and Aww. just yeah it was nice it made me it, and it, it gave me comfort for sure it didn't hurt your neck at all yeah it was one of those small red gideon ones uh thank oh, god okay. <laughs> one of those massive ones but That's such um, a great idea though yeah it, it it helped me out but it also put that in my mind that well i guess this the nightmare is more of a, a devil thing and the uh, like uh, positive dreams are more uh, from God. But yeah, you know, before I met Joshua, I really had the same idea around it. I also didn't recall. I also, I, I consciously kind of steered away from analyzing my dreams or remembering them because mm -hmm. I had negative experiences with nightmares as a child. But yeah, learning from Joshua and just that experience has been amazing doing the podcast because it's it's changed a lot in my life. But also the interviews we get to do with individuals and a lot of them are in the grief world. So that avenue of talking about death more freely has opened up a lot in my life. Because again, I've learned a lot about, you know, whether it's disenfranchised types of grief um, or, you know, how to talk to people who've gone through death and loss. Uh, so yeah, it, it's been tremendous that way. And again, it's it's so nice to even have someone who's close to us listen to the podcast and acknowledge that they've listened to it and actually enjoy it. Uh, I don't have, I mean, I'm sure some people in my family probably list, probably listen to it, but honestly, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> so and, and, and I don't mind. I don't mind. That's okay. I mean, everybody has their own time for things and, and projects. Yeah. I know they love me in different ways, so that's good. But yeah. But yeah, it means a lot, actually, to even have the feedback that you've uh, given us, that you actually enjoy it and are proud of all that. I actually want to bring up something a little slightly off topic, but I remember when Joshua was defending his thesis and you were there and I was there and we're supporting him and you were so happy that day. And just, you know, that was such an amazing day. Mm -hmm. For sure. Incredible. I didn't know anybody else that had gotten their doctorate. <laughs> me neither you know although i'd been to university and graduated i'd never considered going that far yeah. and that's that's just amazing to me yeah it's, 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 it's a, a wondrous accomplishment yeah absolutely and just like uh joshua was saying you know going from like i don't know like who would have thought right who would have thought that these things just come together i never would have thought five years yeah i'm going to be doing a podcast on grief on dreams i'm going to be doing it you know consistently and it's going to bring this much to my life no idea well, I think back to um, when Josh was heading into university, and I remember him saying um, that he had been accepted into the co-op uh, teacher's program, and I could be wrong on this, Josh, <laughs> um, but I remember you saying that, and you said that you turned it down, and it, in my mind, you know, I was like, what? You did what? <laughs> you know, I tried to remain cool and calm. But inside, I, I've never had that kind of strength inside of me, uh, I don't think, to be able to say, 
definitively that I know exactly what I'm supposed to do and it's not being a teacher. And I just knew myself um, in that time period how important male teachers had become and, you know, how certain you'd be to have a job when you came out. Um, so to me, it was just kind of an eye opener that you knew you had no qualms about, I'm not going to do that. I've been given that opportunity, but I choose not to do it because I'm not meant to. I just think that inner beautiful guidance is amazing. And I admire you being able to know that and hear that and see where it's actually led you. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you played it cool when I told you. <laughs> the truth comes out on the podcast. And inside, I'm I'm just, you know, like, what? My head's going in circles. <laughs> funny. But yeah, it is true. It is. That's exactly what happened. I was, uh, I got in and, and I really, I spent a lot of my life preparing for that. Because I know dad really wanted me to become that and grandma. And they really pushed the teacher's um, career on me because they had good pensions Take and science stuff. and math. <laughs> yeah, and I was good at you know I was good at that those subjects, so why not go there? Mm-hmm. And so I really I went through university thinking that's what I was going to do, but it was only after Dad's death, then um, something shifted, mm-hmm. right? And I had that grief dream, yeah. and then like a lot of stuff shifted for me. And as much as I turned it down, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just knew it wasn't that. And I've really, you know, I've gained as much as you said, you haven't done that. I know you've have done a lot of stuff when it comes to trusting your instincts. Um, even when you were looking for work, I remember you were turning down jobs because it didn't feel right or you felt there's something else out there for you. And so like you do have the strength in different ways, um, maybe not okay. in, in that in sense of turning down a school, but um, other things I've seen that in your life. But yeah, with me, it was it was a hard process trying to figure out, even though I turned it down, it's not like I knew what I wanted to do. I was scared because I didn't know. I didn't know anything. Wow. And all I knew that I, you know, like I knew that there's something more for me that I could do. And then when I looked at what kind of education I, or what kind of jobs I could get with the psychology degree I did have, none of them really were fulfilling to me. And then mm-hmm. I, by the time I found uh, work within a field, I didn't like that job at all. And I, so I was struggling in the sense of, you probably don't even know, I was struggling to like, I would say mental health issues, but I didn't really know who I was or what I wanted to do because I moved to Oshawa at that time. And that was the hardest thing for me because I've always felt I knew what I wanted to do. And then by the time I decided I didn't want to do that one thing, I had to start from scratch. And it was it was scary on that sense. And I remember I started playing poker online. <laughs> like, oh, did you? I did, yeah. It was a way to like, I don't know, do something. And uh the person I was dating at the time really uh, had to like shine a light on like who I was becoming because <laughs> I was oh, unmotivated, wow. unmotivated. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was, you know, I was scared to do anything, I think, to dream bigger. And mm-hmm. uh, then like, so like circumstances happen where you find your way and you find that passion, mm-hmm. which was the the dreams and try to understand this mm-hmm. a little bit more because you said like you didn't know, I didn't know anything about it researchers didn't know anything about it and then um the path opened up for me to really easily work with and and study this topic um because where i was that individual there's a university that helped me out to study it and then went back to brock which was great because i got to live back with you and spend some time just hanging out and talking 
because like when you're older it's really you really have like family vacations maybe you'll talk every now and then but to actually live with someone is a different story and so when i know my relationship with you became a lot better and become a lot different i think when we had those that time together more than when i was a kid where i was like more about you know finding a mate or you know playing basketball or trying to like you know make do something else you don't really appreciate you know what you have so it was nice that i had that time as i was exploring this topic to really i think build our relationship a bit more mm-hmm. i agree <laughs> <laughs> and so when it comes to just like the topic of grief i'm curious what was your first like first death in that you've had because i know it wasn't okay so this wasn't i can bad. answer it was um my granny in toronto we had two grannies um so we distinguished which one was which by Granny in Toronto or Granny in St. Catharines. So Granny Nellie was St. Catharines and Granny Annie was the one that was in Toronto. And she was the one um, that had a special interest in me or um, she did things that showed she had a special interest in me out of four kids in my family, an older sister, a younger sister and brother. Um, she did things that let me know I was special to her. So she, I, I remember her um, buying me at a time when I'm starting to go through puberty or whatever, <laughs> that she bought me this um, go-go dress. It's it, going back to that season and in, in time back in the 60s where you'd see on TV the girls would be go-go dancers and they'd have these horizontal striped dresses, bright neon colors. And then they'd be wearing the white go-go boots. So my granny purchased the dress and the boots for me. And it was just such an amazing thing um, to be encouraged by her and to feel like I was, you know, part of the current culture. So, you know, that, for example, but she also purchased gave the money for me to be able to take piano lessons and I did that up and I finished grade five and then realized I didn't really have any musical talent <laughs> um, because of the way the exams were done and so I stopped um, taking lessons at that point and maybe that was around the time that she actually um, died but it, it it didn't dawn on me um, oh and the one time she it, it, I was part of the the choir, the school elementary choir, and she actually, um, she lived in Toronto, so she actually came to the theater we were doing this presentation in to see me, and I can remember her standing there at the entrance to this building and, you know, being there to wave and show that she was actually there and had heard the choir sing. So that type of thing just meant a huge deal to me when you're the middle child uh, or a middle child, it, you know, to be somebody special in her eyes um, really meant a lot to me. So um, grade eight graduation, all of a sudden she died. Um, so graduation, I had a special uh, pink, uh, like Romeo and Juliet dress, <laughs> um, had been bought for me so that I could wear that as my graduation dress. So I never got to go to that graduation because that's when the funeral was held in Toronto. And I, I do remember riding in 
in the limousine or along with the hearse. So not a lot was said. I don't remember much else about that. But what I recognized with the podcast of Flora Baker with what she said, when I look back on my life and I see that in grade nine, I stopped eating. (laughs) Um, And I had never, ever put that together with my grandmother having died. You know, nothing was ever explained as to, you know, where she was going, why she disappeared, why she wouldn't be there anymore. It's not like I was a five-year-old, but that nothing was ever discussed. There wasn't a lot of communication in the family that I recall. So that it just that wasn't something that, you know, I that we talked about. So I stopped eating and I was I lost a lot of weight so that my body functions, I was had lost that much weight that certain normal um, hormonal functions were no longer functioning. And for whatever reason, in my mom's wisdom, um, she took my older sister, Susan, and myself with her to New York City. And I'm not sure if it was grade 9 or grade 10, but she took us on this trip over the Easter long weekend. Um, and for whatever reason, it snowed a massive snowstorm. Um, I got, we were in the hotel and I got Muhammad Ali's signature on a postcard. Wow. He, like he was actually there and it's not like I watched a lot of boxing at the time, but I knew who he was. Like he was in the media very largely. Um, and he was right there in the lobby. And so I, I had a got grabbed the postcard and he signed it for me. And it, it's still in my thing somewhere. But that, that trip somehow changed things for me. And I, I really, have no comprehension if there were any dreams involved. I, you know, there's, I just know that where I wasn't, you know, I didn't eat a breakfast. I didn't eat a lunch. I, you know, really skimped on a supper. So, you know, it's like, I I just, I wouldn't eat. And all of a sudden, you know, with these huge cafeterias or, you know, I started eating huge buffets. Um, I was able to start eating again. That's something that I only just figured out, um, that the two things are likely for combined. Wow, that is, uh, that's super interesting. First of all, you met Muhammad Ali at the height of <laughs> his yes. career. I mean, we're talking about one of the most recognizable faces in the world, mm-hmm. recognizable people in his prime, essentially. I think he was still boxing in like the 80s, pretty much. Uh, but you said like late uh-huh. 70s, I think. Um, this would have been 60s, I'm pretty sure. Oh, so oh, he was definitely still. Yeah. That's, that's incredible on its own. But uh, I understand what you're saying, because with that Flora Baker podcast, she was talking about uh, traveling in order to kind of, I guess, uh, have a different perspective to shake things up. And it helped her in a way of removing her from the area she was in. Uh, and I guess that was stagnant for her. So that kind of helped in that way. I mean, obviously, there's elements of avoidance. But at the end of the day, um, that was something she needed to do. And for you, obviously, it helped out because you started eating again. And mm-hmm. I guess feeling better, which was uh, good to hear. But wow, what a interesting journey. <laughs> this is why I really wanted you on the podcast. And I think bringing other family members on the podcast would be helpful, too. But you don't really know 
their journey. And as much as we've talked about stuff, like this has never come up. And the magic of the podcast, you know, like on on hearing stories, new stories, even from people you know, like there's there's a lot that we've experienced that, you know, the only the right question will bring about a, a new perspective, a new answer. And so I didn't know anything about that. I know your grandmother died, but I didn't know all that, the heartache you went through. And then, you know, like, and how special she was to you. And anytime you lose someone that thinks you, that believes you're in you and believes that you're special, um, that's a huge loss. That's such a huge loss because now you got to try to cultivate that on your own. And that's why we needed them because we couldn't do it on our own, you know, like, so um, for, for you to then also grade nine is high school when that starts too. So you're going through another transition in your life. So it's just like compounded. And yeah, I wouldn't doubt if that had a huge part in you trying to find control in not eating. That's wild. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you decided to eat. I'm glad you're, your mother took you on that trip too, right? Because you really, we don't really, when you look back and you're not like, when you don't connect the dots then, it's hard to go back, but you realize there's something there that changed. And mm-hmm. that's sort of like the mystery of this life is like, what what happened there? Like, what was it actually? Now that you're more um, aware of the uh, psychological effects that you're going through and how distinct and how, it, how your life changed, it's like, what was that? Because we want to use that more often, right? The more we understand how we got through difficult times, the more we can cultivate that for the next time some, a challenge happens. That was a, a time when there were no computers. They had not surfaced yet. So now there's so much said about anorexia. Um, there's so much more available that you can you can take a look at and research for yourself. But back then, there, were, there wasn't anything that um, you could really turn to. So I'm grateful that my mom chose at that particular time to take me. Um, on that trip that was momentous in my survival <laughs> and in you coming about josh <laughs> <laughs> i think a little later than that right i'm pretty sure you're still nice you're still in good yeah, time yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever like talked about like these this loss with any of your siblings no like how they because they would have a they, like sean was talking about this how the importance of siblings that they can sometimes tell you how different things you can't remember about what yeah. you were going through that that you may have forgotten but they they know and so i wonder if they had any insights into how you were dealing with grade nine and that struggle yeah so my sister susan would be the one that would probably have the information uh, my younger sister diane three years younger so i don't know how much she would have noticed and my brother would be way too young i don't know he would have been born but he would have just been a toddler um yeah that's very interesting i may have to ask my sister about that well these are the conversations that we love having right because it just opens up new conversation where we learn about each other and how we Mm -hmm. deal with loss and it would have affected them too in some way or you know a different loss that they've had and you just, we, without asking the questions, you just, we always, I think we just like avoid the conversation for different reasons, but there's so much richness to being and learning about what people go through. So is in, um, in high school, is that where you met dad or Mark, I guess? <laughs> yes. Um, so grade 12, um, May or June of grade 12, I was invited to a girlfriend's house and we 
there was a whole group of us downstairs and we just sat and chatted and then um, I needed a way to get home. It was dark. Uh, he said he would drive me home. So that's where it all started. Wow. Were you wearing that go-go dress? <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> I probably outgrew it. <laughs> oh, that's nice. So you guys met there. That's really cool that you guys met at a party. You never know where you meet someone. Yeah, it's not like it was a Friday night party. I think it was a weeknight or something odd. Um, but it introduced us, and, and it kind of developed from there. Hmm. What were some qualities that you found appealing or attractive in Mark? Uh, very intelligent, um, very knowledgeable. Um, he was tall and slim. <laughs> he had long hair, and that's in the 70s, right? He had very long hair. So, you know, for whatever reason, it, you know, that was something that attracted me. And he had a car. Mm, he <laughs> had a car. Exactly. Oh, see, that's so perceptive of you. <laughs> it's very true. He had a car to drive. Um, and he started working. Um, he was working at the St. Lawrence Seaway as like a guard or a night night staff, night shift guard. Um, but he went from that to working at uh, a paper mill. And that's where there was a great deal of heat. He was cleaning out the vat um, where the paper was mulched up, I guess. And he, as he was climbing, he had to clean it. And so when he was trying to climb out of the vat, the heat uh, and the steam, um, he just, he got knocked out and fell back against the um, the blade. Uh, and from what I recall, it, it broke his back. So I, I'm not remembering the details of the diagnosis because it was very early on when I met him. Um, but that was something that, you know, I was thinking about it recently. Um, with the podcast coming up, and, and I realized that that is an underlying aspect to who he was. Mm. Um, do you ever, are you ever healed from a, a back injury like that? Do you ever regain 100% of who you were before? And so I think back problems were something that he dealt with all the time. And I remember my parents saying to me, oh, you don't want to keep dating him. You know, it was like, oh, he's damaged goods. You should should not date him <laughs> anymore. Um, they had this strict idea of who I was supposed to unite with, and that caused great tension with my mother and I. But <laughs> yeah, working. Yeah, <laughs> who, um... who as a, a late teen or early twenties listens to their parents? I would have been, you know, in my teens. You know, what female listens to their parents? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I mean, working in manufacturing myself, um, I I, uh, I know what you're talking about. A lot of those injuries, I mean, it's a dangerous environment in general. But a lot of those injuries uh, can be life changing in a lot of ways. Uh, I know of a bunch of ex-employees that I've worked with that um, had severe injuries, including neck or back injuries, and it changed a lot in their life. Uh, some of them ended up getting um, 
kind of dependent on different types of medication because uh you know they're in physical pain a lot so they they mm. and, and that was uh in a lot of ways and and especially back then um healthcare uh was not as advanced as obviously it is today where you could get different therapies or surgeries or things to kind of relieve pain and and who knows what type mm. of pain meds they were giving out back then um mm-hmm. as well could have been cocaine back then. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. I know he suffered from like health issues like later on in life, but yeah. I didn't know also the, the back. And I know it was, he have asthma too. And asthma stuff. really bad yeah. and allergies. So yeah, skin problems. And that also, that also actually could have been exasperated by working in a paper mill mm. um, for sure. So, but because of that accident, he was retrained, um, and his selection was he wanted to be a helicopter pilot. So he was trained in Niagara Falls. I think it's a B forty seven. I I was going to look it up, and <laughs> I didn't. Um, but you know the, the MASH program. Um, the helicopters they used in the MASH uh, series, oh, yeah. um, the B-47, the bubble um, at the front. So that's how he got his helicopter, commercial helicopter license. Oh, wow. And then he, he, part of it, you had to do the hours, so he would be taking tourists on laps around the falls. Um, and then when he finished that he and had was fully licensed, then he actually got hired with a company, Northern BC, and then ended up in Yellowknife. And that's when we were first married. Uh, He was gone for a few months. So he was able to actually work and fly for a while. And I I can't say for long how how many months it was, but he was gone for a while. Um, And eventually, the second company he went uh, to work for, um, I think, uh, one of the pilots actually crashed, and that was a horrifying experience for him. And so there wasn't a helicopter for him to fly, so he came back to the Niagara Peninsula, uh, was retrained. So he had his flying license, his helicopter license, but he wanted desperately to be a land, sea, and air guy. So he had the air <laughs> with the helicopter license. Um, so then he was retrained through the government federal program uh, as a stationary engineer, and he did actually move up to have his second-class stationary engineer and worked in Niagara Falls while you children were being born. So that's how we got four children. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it's interesting to sort of hear that side of his his journey and how you said like he is intelligent and it's not something I would have mm-hmm. thought just by thinking of of him of who he yeah yeah of who he was just because I didn't see that side of him too much and yeah. like we didn't have those intellectual conversations that you know that you may think it was it was something different that you know I I went through but it's interesting how you saw that side of him on how smart he was and how he could do a lot of things once he put his mind to it. Right. So when you were in elementary school and he was working full time, three shifts, 
um, he chose to use a vacation to actually do his bell to I think it's a 212. Um, so that's the encased, the, the large, I don't know if it's turbine engine, I think, is um, the term. It's, it's the bigger helicopter. So he did that um, endorsement. And then later, he actually did his fixed wing commercial license. And just before I ran into health problems, he had done his night raiding and he was supposed to go on a trip. They were going to fly down to the islands uh, in the Caribbean. And so that was something he held against me because I got sick. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's a legitimate claim. I did <laughs> get sick, but it, it wasn't on purpose. So he couldn't go to the Caribbean and fly. <laughs> Yeah, that, I think that changed a lot in the dynamics. Like looking back, I would think that would change a lot mm-hmm. because it changed his dreams on what where he could go and it changed the family structure and also how we were being raised. And so if you want to go into a little bit about, you know, I guess, you know, when you first got sick and what that experience was like for you being a mother and not being able to be around your children. Uh, that... Um... It's an, a huge part of my life. It took up a lot of time. And it was certainly a time when all I could do was trust in my higher power, whom I choose to call God. It it had to be a very close walk with God. So Rachel is the youngest one. She was uh, born a week early on the 13th of January in December um, I, I always try to do too much, so I had you three children at home. I babysat or provided child care for two additional children, uh, and I was also continuing to take courses. I had my Bachelor of Arts degree in politics, but um, I continued on with the Honors Bachelor of Administration, so I was continuing to take accounting and income tax courses. Um, so I was taking a course, and I was writing an exam on December 17th. And at that point, um, I was having some breathing difficulty, like coughing. Um, So I contacted the obstetrician's office. They sent me a prescription for antibiotics. And I finished that, and it seemed okay for a few days and then, um, or a little while. And then Rachel was born on January 13th. And at that time, they kept you in the hospital for four to five days. So as they were about to release me that particular morning, I could hear, as I was laying down in bed, I could hear crackling as I was breathing. And I thought, well, you know, the nurse is going to listen, and she'll let me know if it's something I need to be concerned about. I had no clue what it meant. So the nurse listened to my chest, and she said, okay, you're good to go. So off I went, taking baby number four home, and within, I was having a struggle, I I really did find, but who knows, maybe it's just because this is my fourth child, there's three others at home, I'm still trying to get the, you know, the house cleaned and um, do the administrative stuff and catch up, and here we'd missed Josh's birthday on the 14th, so we needed to kind of celebrate that in a little way, Mm -hmm. Um, but we... (laughs) Finally, that last day that I was at home, I 
went into the washroom and it was like um, a black blind was pulled down um, and I knew that I was in trouble and I was able to call out for help and uh, your dad Josh called a taxi you know we had no I had no experience with ambulances or doctors at that point really other than childbirth so he put my shoes on me and walked me out to the car and put me in the back seat of the taxi and said take her to the hospital it's probably only like a seven minute drive so I got there and nurses met me with a wheelchair and took me in and um, Dr. Raimondo was the one that looked after me overnight um, but realized uh, that I needed help <laughs> um, I was in trouble so he arranged for me to be sent by ambulance to Toronto General it was a snowstorm that morning <laughs> So I was having a very hard time breathing in the ambulance and they chose to stop at the Oakville Hospital and intubated me and then took me on to Toronto General. Um, and I was there, I'm, I'm recollecting probably three weeks, if not longer. But at that point, they told me that I was, well, I was in ICU for a while, intubated. They wanted to do a heart biopsy, um, but I didn't like the idea, and I, I could be very stubborn. <laughs> they wanted to know what type of virus it was that was attacking my heart. But And I found out later at that particular time there was, um, I think Jim Henson with the Muppets, right? Jim Henson yeah. had died of a virus that attacked his heart at that time. And then there was also a weightlifter on the West Coast that died of a virus that hit his heart also. So that just kind of illuminates, you know, the trouble I was in. The heart was super huge and I had pneumonia because of this virus. So that's why I was hearing the crackling because it was in my lungs. Um, the heart was actually backing up. It was too big and it wasn't pumping so fluid was ending up in my lungs, and that's where the pneumonia came from. What's interesting <laughs> I, is, is well, I'm just looking up uh, some things on Jim Henson. He actually took a taxi to the hospital as well. <laughs> oh, did he really? Yeah. I just thought, how cold yeah, that is. Like, couldn't was, you put me in an ambulance? <laughs> he was having trouble I'm breathing. I'm really sick. <laughs> <laughs> he was having trouble breathing and uh, did not want to take time off his schedule didn't, you know, and ended up taking a taxi. I was wow. super weak, super, super weak. I was going to say, yeah, so you were in the hospital, and then were you in the hospital for a long time? Because I re try to remember as a kid no, that you so were... No, Toronto, Toronto General sent me home. I don't know if they didn't know quite what to do with me, um, but they sent me home. Um, you can't really do too much about the virus. The, the antibiotics will get rid of the pneumonia, right? But I was sent home, and I, I had, I was given home care um, to help with the children because there's an infant baby at home, and your dad, Josh, was working three shifts, four time anyway. After I got sick, so I'd have help come in three times a week, probably for a morning, um, and 
after probably three months, it would stop, and I'd try to do everything again on my own, and it, it, it wouldn't work. I'd end up back in the hospital again. So this went on for a while. But in 88, I had asked the uh, doctor in Toronto if he could recommend a doctor in Hamilton that I could go to see. Um, and so he recommended um, this Debbie for me to go see. And she was an amazing doctor. She was absolutely wonderful. Um, so every so often I would be put back in the hospital to, to do some additional tests, see how things were going. And then I'd get back home. Uh, maybe they'd adjust things. Um, I'd get back home and um, I'd be able to have home care again for a while. Um, but we found that the home care, every they'd keep sending in somebody new and with four children and one of them an infant, it just, it was a little too much for me to try to introduce the new care PSW to this home um, and have it flow smoothly. So finally, Pyramid sent me Lucy McCullough, truly an amazing woman, um, a godsend for sure. Uh, and she stayed with us for many, many years. Um, I'm grateful for her being there. She knew each one of the children. She'd, um, she'd be doing the laundry, you know, changing beds, um, grocery shopping, dishes. She was just totally an amazing blessing. And we still stay in touch to this day. Okay, how's that? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I remember. I remember Lucy, but I also remember okay. like moments where I was like, um, I was passed around to different families in the church. Yeah. Were... So each each time I'd end up in the hospital, you know, there would be the call for support, the stints where you were. Um, taken to different homes, uh, I would be in the hospital for a longer period of time, and amazing uh, families would um, take you in um, and look after, like both boys, they'd take you and Nathan in with their four kids, <laughs> the Crowicks, and, and so many other families pitched in to help. Um, made the difference of it, us actually surviving it and getting through it. So in in the longer period of time, that, that, that was when I ended up in um, University Hospital in London. That's where Toronto General sent me, and any time after. So that major, I, I was in from October 6th. I, th this doctor, the cardiologist in Hamilton, um, sent me a message. She called to say that she wanted me to come in for an appointment and possibly some tests. So the whole family's in the van. We go for the appointment. It's okay. I can go home. Um, we stop in at the Hamilton market. So I leave. Your dad's kind enough to let me off at the door, go down the stairs, and then grab the special bread. Uh, Rebecca was on a special diet, and I would go in there to buy the oatmeal bread for her. Um, so I was able to get the bread for her and then hurry back up. But that particular day, um, I knew that your dad was having difficulty dealing with things, possibly. And I knew there was um, a Mickey in the car in the sleeve, and that had me torn up inside. Um, there was something very wrong. 
with that and I didn't have the courage to say anything or do anything. There was a fair amount of fear involved, anxiety and stress, um, but I was afraid of him and couldn't say anything, didn't say anything, but I was very anxious. And as I ran up the stairs, tried to run up the stairs, knowing I was heading back to the car, um, I must have arrested again. And down I went, broke my front tooth, but, you know, didn't come around until just before Christmas. I was, that's, that's what I remember, um, is not knowing anything until Christmas again. Um, when I came around, they were trying to find out if I was all right or not. I was still intubated, um, and I wrote Je suis Julie on a, a pad of paper. They gave me the pencil, and that's what I wrote. So I was thinking I was in my elementary years learning French in school. And so that's what I came out thinking that I was Julie Maximician from elementary school. And so gradually from that point, they knew I had a brain. And that's the problem with when you're in a cardiac arrest, uh, your heart stops, there's no oxygen to the brain, um, you become brain dead. And so my understanding is that me being on the floor in the Hamilton market, I should have been brain dead. And that's fully what they expected at the hospital. After that, they were in December. I remember them actually giving me um, extensive testing to see. But between the time I woke up as an elementary student um, and got to December before Christmas, I had regained my faculties. And I was able to pass the, this exam that they were giving me, that I could think, I could do math, I, I could function, um, which is a miracle, considering how long I would have been out before the ambulance attendants got to me. And they had to keep, they had to use the defibrillator, but you try at a lower rate, and they had to keep increasing the joules, and they had to finally go to max which is 360, to be able to get the heart back to, to function. Like it was kind of like, this is the last resort. We can't do anything more if it, this doesn't work. So from the time uh, that Rachel is born, pretty mm -hmm. much up until the collapse in Hamilton, was that like a year? Uh, Date-wise, I'd have to kind of sit down and, and mm -hmm. figure out the dates. But she was born January 87. Mm -hmm. um, 88, 89 was, 80, was when I was in University Hospital. So, Wow. wow. So you, you had been dealing with this for quite some time. That must have been very, obviously, frustrating and stressful. Mm -hmm. and, wow. But wow. thankfully, um, I already had a base of faith to carry me through. Um, there's a lot of so many things have happened in my life, and I, we're probably not going to have time to, you know, mention each one of them in any um, deep detail. But having faith already allowed me to continue developing that faith. So... God told me very clearly that I needed to keep walking the tower in University Hospital. 
the nurses didn't know what to do with me because I walked the tower, did the perimeter three times a day before each meal. I would do the perimeter, and I don't know how many laps I did. No, this is uh, this is very interesting and and really good to hear your story. And it's just a, it's just amazing to me. Like I can't imagine the emotions going through what you had to go through in terms of having children home that you want young children that you wanted to be with having this condition that's really fearful putting you close to death uh essentially many times what was it like when you were able to be home more consistently the one thing can i just back up just a tiny yeah, bit yeah yeah sure one of the things that i had to do to keep my own peace and sanity I'm a person that loves to give gifts. So with the kids, I wanted them to recognize that I was, even though I was away, I was thinking about them. So I would do up a little note for them every time their dad would come up without them. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't see anybody, um, you know, it might be once a month, depending on shift work, et cetera. And on the rare occasion that they did come up, it was... I wanted to be able to give them something, so I would I would ask for two of the yogurts, two of the cereals. You know, when you order food on the menu mm-hmm. um, in the hospital, they'll give you two of things. So the nurses didn't mind; um, they were so kind in that way, and that was something that I did so that they would take it home with them, or it would be taken home for them, and. Like I'd save it for them and it be taken home for them and they'd know hopefully that I was thinking about them, even though I wasn't there. Um, so that was something that was kind of weird. But there was also a, an amazing woman, um, Kay, um, in London that came to visit me, a Christian. And she was re- a retired teacher, I believe. She was just so amazing. She would... I would ask her to do shopping for me so that I could um, maybe get a pair of runners for for one of the children or something I knew that they needed so that each one would get something when they came. And they probably don't remember now, but that type of thing was important to me. And she would do this shopping for me. Just amazing. So I'm thankful that God put certain people in my path to be able to help me. Were you ever worried? Because I know you like you're saying dad was drinking at different times and now with four kids on his own, were you ever worried about us in the house? <laughs> Massively. <laughs> um, so there was there was one time that I phoned uh, and I could hear there was great disruption, something to do with Rebecca and she had to have a special diet back then. And it, it wasn't a huge deal. She had allergies, but you had to be able to go with the flow and just deal with it and keep to the diet. But your dad wasn't as um, strongly believing in what I was doing um, with diets as I was. And so we ran, there was a difficulty there. Uh, and I don't really know how it was working there. I, I wasn't there during that time, but when I phoned, I knew that there was a horrible situation existing, and I felt 
really scared, really frightened um, for Rebecca, um, but for what was happening in the house. Uh, and so I did call my mother-in-law, and she was aware of, of the type of things that were going in the, on in the house. And so I felt I could ask her or, you know, bring this to her attention. So she went over right away and um, was able to check in on things and, and help. And so she was able to let me know that, yeah, okay, things are, things are all right. Yeah, there was nothing that I could do in that situation except call for help and you were it was mentioned it, it might have been in Flora Baker's podcast but you were mentioning about asking for help it it had always been a home where you didn't ask for help you, you were behind closed doors and everything stayed there and and that for sure you understand if somebody does have a problem with alcohol you understand the importance of that, but yet it makes it very difficult to deal with it. So it got to a point where I had to, you know, be upfront with my mother-in-law and let her know. And so from that point on, uh, I was able to talk with her and explain, you know, what was happening at any point. And so that at least it, it wasn't, I was totally alone, that there was... Um, you know, I, I recall a time when things were a uh, major explosion and I, I had Nathan in my arms and Rebecca as a young, very young person holding her hand and, and leaving the house with backpack and heading down the street and up around the corner to get on a bus to go to grandma's house because things were not what they should have been in the home. And you know to go and stay with Grandma for a few days, so yeah that that would happen every so often things would get bad, and I've probably gone off track, and <laughs> you can pull me back <laughs> no it's it's good it's just good to know because i I really want people to understand a little bit about your relationship with Dad and also like the difficulties you had with just the way he coped because like as a when I look back i um, I don't have a lot of fond memories when I was a kid. I was I was afraid of him, as you're saying, right? Like there's a lot of yeah. fear there, and he yeah. really puffed his chest out a lot. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And you know, it was a different time also on on what was allowed to be able to mm -hmm. do. But I was always afraid, and I always would hear him yelling at you if I was in the room. And I remember me and my brother, uh, we would always like listen to the door or listen to the floor, uh, depending where our room was just like the excessive yelling and at you, I'm guessing that's more or less who it was at. And it's just like, ha and, but you stayed and you, you were a part of that relationship till I think we were much older. And so I'm just curious, like, as you look back at that, that full relationship before you got uh, divorced, how, how did your faith help you through that? And like, cause I think a lot of people, I may have would have left a little earlier. I know I think you you're saying you wanted to stay until the kids were old enough to fend for themselves kind of thing. But right. I'm well, curious about your your experiences there. Well, we were supposed to be born again Christians. Like we had accepted the Lord into our lives and I was attending church regularly and to and to have this going on in the home was first very embarrassing, but also very hard on your children. So I, I do recall a time when Nathan was older 
you know, pretty much full grown and him pleading with me, pounding the floor downstairs, you know, mom, you got to do something, wake up. But I was just so tight behind those closed doors that I can't, I can't breach the sanctity of the marriage. I can't do that. I can't turn him in. But, you know, if I, that's why I say if I had been strong enough, maybe things would have turned out different or maybe not. Yeah, you know, irreparable harm was caused by me staying, but yet I felt for various reasons I needed to stay until there was no way out. And so that final night where he had mixed alcohol and drugs was where the, the problem would arise occasionally. And when that happened and we were all called into the kitchen and there was going to be this massive scene and where Nathan was being attacked with the office chair that was pulled apart. So it was just the um, just the cil- cylinder, you know, the post. Your dad was going to attack him with that. That was that was it. I, I could not do it anymore. Um, and so it turned out... Either Nathan or Rachel or both. Um, I know Nathan had called the police previously and let them know that there was a problem. And I can recall looking out the front window one night before this and seeing a police car sitting there with two men in it, two police officers, and wondering, why are they sitting there? And they sat there for the longest time. And I, it never dawned on me that Nathan had called to alert them that things aren't right in the house, in this home. And so I give him credit for that, that he had the courage. I didn't. (laughs) Um, And then so on that night when things blew up, Rachel ran to her friend's house. She managed to slip in behind me in the kitchen and go out through the front door. I heard the door close behind her, but she ran a couple of blocks to her friend Sarah's house, and they called the police. And so there was many, many... (laughs) If not, the whole police force of St. Catherine showed up on Lake Street, sirens going, lights flashing, and I knew at that moment the doors were open. I didn't have to hide it anymore, and that has been an amazing release for me because there was so much fear with those doors closed. Um, And so gradually I've been able to work through that and just see God's presence with that separation. The police took him just overnight, but it allowed us the time. Thankfully, my sister Susan took us in. The five of us, Rebecca was already on her own, but the five of us went to my sister's and she hosted us for probably a week and put up with us. But she was just wonderful to have been the one to take us in and to have come picked us up to to get us there. I remember that. And like, it's Interesting when you talk to other people, because I don't remember Rachel and my memories there, because my memories oh. just really go towards what happened in the kitchen when dad was yeah. attacking. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And so Rachel you know, wasn't there. She disappeared. Yeah. So like, but in my memory, right now I get a fuller picture. And I think this is the beauty of yeah. just talking to family members about like events in our lives. You get a different perspective mm-hmm. on what, what may have happened in that situation. And I know for me, Sean, I was actually at Sir Winston when this happened. And um, it was a very difficult time for me. I remember I had a project due, I think, 
couple of days yeah. later and I completely bombed the uh the presentation. It was like and oh. I just I'm like I just wanted to like never tell people that like this stuff was going on. It was hard mm-hmm. though. It was really hard and like mm-hmm. no one you almost felt a, like love alone with mm-hmm. that. Oh for sure. Yeah. Man, just hearing that, it, it definitely brought a tear to my eye. It's just, you know, children being in that environment. But also, look, you can't beat yourself up about that. I mean, a lot of women have, have been in those situations. And, mm-hmm. you know, Mark was obviously in pain, in his own pain. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, uh, he didn't know how to manage that. But in this family situation, you're there and, you know, we, we have talked about, you know, how the memory is weird, you know, just consolidating those memories can be difficult, especially painful ones. And, you know, it's like you're seeing a movie from a heightened state, but from your angle. And sometimes it is good to, you know, talk to siblings and figure out and obviously talk to, you know, you and say, oh, I didn't even realize that, you know, Mm -hmm. my sister did this or this other thing happened. And a big thing too, Sean, I wanted to sort of mention also is that I remember telling two people, two of my friends, um, that what happened and I remember them not caring. I think that was the hardest thing. Oh, gee. Yeah. So I think I kept a lot of it inside because you just, you just have this idea that, oh, no, no one really cares. And I think that's why, that's why I think we do this podcast to sort of shed light on some of this, this information that, you know, people do care, but some people just don't know how to handle it and friends yeah. included. You know, they didn't know. Yeah. Um, I think they haven't had to deal with that themselves. And so um, you're just left in that position where you're trying to just figure it out yourself. And, you know, I, I feel for you too, mom, like to try to do that yourself, right? Like it's not like you had, you could open those doors and tell people. There wasn't like a lot of places you can go. And so, you know, you did what you needed to do and you stayed and, you know, look at me now. I do have a PhD, so I guess it's, it's okay. <laughs> it all worked um, out. Yeah. It all worked out in the end. But yeah, it, just, it takes work and it takes, it took a lot of self-reflection to work through some of the stuff and some of the memories that you have. And even for me, when it came to building a relationship with dad, it didn't really happen until after the separation. And yeah. so for me, it was like the best thing you could have done was that because then the relationship could have grown with him because he dropped the act of needing to be a father. And so for me, I got to sort of see him as a, uh, a friend, I guess the best way to put it, like as a, someone. Okay. Yeah. And so I had conversations with him about real life stuff, right? And he wasn't trying to tell me to do anything. He was just like being there. And that's when yeah. I developed like a relationship with him. So when I tell people I, like I lost my dad and they feel sympathy, it's really only two years that you know that really meant something to me it was those two years after you guys separated that actually were valuable the rest for the most for the most part anyways i think as a as a kid i had some fond memories but um other than that there's a lot of a lot of challenges within that relationship and i think the one person we talked to alexa on the podcast recently really shined a light on we have to sort of talk about our loved ones and their goodness but also their challenge and and i guess their um the challenges they brought our lives too because people aren't perfect. And, you know, when it comes to dad, he wasn't perfect. He was dealing with his own stuff that, you know, I've come to learn more about by asking you and grandma about some of the, and even his siblings, some of the challenges that he had to go through as a person and to try to figure out why he couldn't cope appropriately. And so I, I feel for him because as Sean said, right, he was in a lot of suffering. And at that time, you know, alcohol was one of those things that people 
especially men went towards to solve some of those issues. And he was just caught up, really caught up in that. And he didn't have the support system and the structure around him either to really understand himself like we do now. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, it's something that, uh, you know, you look back at each generation and how they were raised and um, maybe the challenges that they faced or what they learned how to cope, you know. And like Joshua was saying, like a lot of men, you know, in, in that era, 60s, 70s, you know, I've worked even in, to be honest, even today, um, if I, I've worked with a lot of older gentlemen who cope using um, alcohol or drugs and a lot of older men maybe weren't taught how to talk things through, how to seek help. Like you said, when you were talking about, you know, keeping things within the family, keeping that veneer shiny, you know, keeping the image of the church going family, that, that, that's so common. And even in my upbringing, um, that was a common thing. You know, you don't reveal what goes on in the house. And I think that was something that was definitely taught and it, uh obviously it reached a point where you guys needed to make changes and again it 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 took a lot of courage uh on everybody's part really in that home to kind of make that move um and and also do it for the ones that couldn't you know the ones that maybe were scared obviously a lot of fear so i was thankful i knew about women's place in St. Catharines, and so um, when this whole eruption happened, um, I, I did call them thinking, okay, well, maybe we could seek shelter there, but it turned out because Nathan, uh, I don't was he 17 at the t- time or 18, I'm not sure, he, he could have even been 19, but because of his age, we couldn't go to women's place, so that was something that was disappointing to me, that you know, there was that exclusion that we didn't fit the parameters and couldn't seek help there. So, you know, that's, I'm very, very thankful for Sue having help. But yeah, it, in that time period in 60s and 70s um, and 80s, it was normal to drink. Like that's in my home family, you know, my dad would work hard at the factory and he'd have his three beers every night. It's just that was normal. You'd see it on TV too. You know, the shows would, and still I see some of the shows that are on. You, you still, like Blue Blood, you still see them. The police commissioner, he's having um, a couple of ounces of hard liquor at night with his dad um, or his daughter. And um, so I still see it very prevalent um, in the media that it, it's okay that this is part of what it's like to be an adult. So as I was growing up, I'm in my teens, I'm thinking it's okay to drink. So it didn't, it it never occurred to me that there was anything wrong um, with Josh, Josh's dad's, you know, drinking. And, and I could even accompany him too to the bars. So, you know, that's something over time you learn um, and it's more prevalent now I've spent a couple decades almost in Al-Anon to, to help me understand and help me work through what we went through um, and, and learn more about it and the kind of dynamics that were going on 
And so, yeah, it'd be better if I were doing it again. I'd be that much wiser and maybe stronger to be able to deal with it differently. But I have more compassion, I, I do believe, for Josh's dad now than, you know, initially when this happened. I, I asked, there were three things that needed to happen in order for the family to get back together again. And he wouldn't do them. He wouldn't agree to them. So that's why we ended up divorcing after a few years. Was it difficult asking for, because I know like this was like one of the major times you really asked for help um, and then going to Al-Anon, was that a difficult process for you or or how did that go for you? Because you're really like going there for the first time, not really knowing and not really, haven't really opened up to a lot of people about it. Uh, so it, it's, it's a, a very tight knit family, really. Um, that welcomes new people every week. And so the very first time, I, one of the first times I was, it was at church on St. Paul Street in St. Catharines that I was walking up to, I had a very difficult time figuring out how to get into the church because there was, the front doors were locked. And it turned out you had to go around the block to be able to get in through the back door. So I was grateful that I ever even got to the first meeting but one of the first meetings I'm walking there and a a gentleman comes up to me and says where's the nearest bar (laughs) (laughs) on my way to an Al-Anon meeting it was just the the strangest thing and so it was just there's all kinds of bars just turn around and go back where you came from on St. Paul Street there's lots of bars but just further down the street but this was also a time um, when I felt God's touch I started after the separation I started walking, um, finding that I, as long as I had somewhere I needed to go, I could walk there. So why get in the car and drive somewhere? I could just walk there. So I could walk to the mall or walk downtown. And so that's what I started doing. Um, and I started, it, it was a, a time of introspection or um, trying to, feeling very sad, disappointed. So. I started finding pennies and every walk pretty much I'd find a penny and it would just be like God touching me. Not quite a hug, but pretty close. (laughs) Um, I just had the very strong feeling that the pennies were from God. And it was every time pretty much I'd go up for a walk, I'd find one. The one day coming home from Al-Anon is why I'm telling the story. Um, This is at night. Um, So I'm walking home in the dark. It's not under a street light, but on the sidewalk, I see a penny and it's a light snow that's coming down, but I see this penny. So I stop and I get pennies, whether in the middle of an intersection or on a sidewalk, I would stop and get that penny. So I stopped and I picked up the penny, but then I noticed that there's another penny and another one and, and, and more. And so I picked them up and there were 27 pennies that I picked up and just could not believe it. I was in awe. This just, this was a hug. (laughs) Um, This was amazing. And I had been feeling sad as I left the meeting. You're discussing things that, um, whether you went through or, you know, another new person to the group has gone through and, and just feeling a little sad. And this was an enormous encouragement for me. So just something if I'm on, while I'm on that train of thought, um, Josh, when your di- dad died in 2000, 
and eight in January, all of a sudden I started finding dimes. So I'm still walking um, as much as I can, but still finding dimes. And I have, I've saved them. I have one envelope with 31 dimes in it, and the other envelope has 32 dimes in it. Um, and this was right, it started right after he passed. And I did show them to your grandma, Josh, Grandma Barb. And she said, well, no wonder it's got a sailing ship on it. It's got a boat on it. And that was one of the last things he did um, was get his a, a ticket for sailing. Uh, and he had worked on the Welland Canal ships for a short period of time as well. So, yeah, it was quite obvious to Grandma why I would be finding these dimes. And I had chosen to go back to school. I was allowed the opportunity to go back in 2009 is when I went back to um, Sheridan College to take the paralegal program. Um, and so they had an information session, and I went to that and stopped in at the washroom first before I went to the session thinking, you know, a little nervous about this, not only my age, but can I really do this? I was going to be traveling from St. Catharines to Brampton daily, which is at least an hour and a quarter. And if there's a snowstorm, it's a whole lot longer. Hmm. If there's a traffic jam, it can take hours. So when I went into the stall in the washroom, there was a dime in that stall. And that was a comfort to me. You know, is that from God or is it actually from your dad arranging that? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting you know, to I, think I, about because I, because uh, when you, you first did the, the pennies and then you like the dimes mm-hmm. from dad, because you guys really didn't end off on like a, a great note. And so I was curious, no. like what those dimes really meant to you in the sense of him being dead, your own grief. And what you sort of felt that was like, was it like a forgiveness kind of thing? Like, what do you think it was all about? Um, there, we did have, um, he, he showed up on a couple of occasions after the divorce. And the one time it was outside the Al-Anon meeting, he was there after I came out um, early on. And we talked, but I wasn't willing to have it go any further because he hadn't done the three things I'd asked him to do so that I could have any assurance. So no, I I wasn't interested in in getting in a vehicle with them. You know, it was like, this is a nice talk, but I'm I'm leaving now. So we didn't really leave it on horrible terms, but still from time to time, there will be the thought, uh, you know, various thoughts that, you know, if I'd hung in there longer, if I'd had the courage to say enough is enough and stand up to him, maybe things would have been different. But I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. God, I asked God after the divorce, I asked God to bring me a man that I could talk with um, in my later years um, that I could actually communicate with. There, There was no communication with your dad. He was the general or the boss. That's typically in in those years. That's how families were set up. When I was young, the dad's the boss of the family. So you know that made sense in my marriage as well. Well, it's great, and it's great that you you found that. And you said like it's when you're in a relationship for so long, it's hard to think that the 
opposite is out there in a way. And so it's mm-hmm. nice that you're able to to find that, to be able to figure out what that's all about and how to sort of have a relationship with someone who communicates and what that feels like, because it would be a little awkward, I would think, if you're not used to it. But I'm really curious about, you know, like, because, you know, dad died and I know I wasn't where I am today. If I was, you know, when we look back on, you know, I would have done things a little differently in sense of um, talking with people about their grief, even your grief. And I never did, never asked about it um, when I was at that stage of my life. And so, like, how was that for you? Like, did, like, was there any issues or anything that, did you talk to anyone about your grief after dad died? Because I know we always talk about disenfranchised grief and um, dad would have been that because you guys weren't married anymore. And so no one would have really, I think, um, asked about your grief at that time. God is very, very real to me. There is a very spiritual side to our lives. Um, And God was able to bring me through that and through many other situations, other events. I knew God was with me. So when your dad died, I knew he had gone to be with the Lord. And there were these spiritual events, like that dime that showed up um, in that washroom stall. I had no doubt whether it had anything to do, I know it had something to do with him, but whether it was simply God showing me that dime on behalf of him or him being able to put it there. I believe there's that spiritual side to us. Right. So you you didn't really talk to anyone. You really just kept it in and Mm -hmm. um, dealt with it yourself. And, you know, so I think like those walking moments that you have is your self-reflection. That's when you do a lot of your, your, your thinking and um, work through some of the the stuff you have, but it's still, it reminds me of me too, because I don't talk I and it used to, I didn't, I kept everything inside and I would play basketball as a way of coping through a lot of my emotions and a lot of the, the stress I was dealing with. And so it's, it's interesting to just think because I wish I could ask more about what you're going through at that time. But, uh, you said you found your way through and you, you have a belief that he's in a different place when, you know, it can help certain people and some people in your situation may think he may not have went to heaven. And so it's nice that you're able to have the, have the positive view of where he's at and that he's still in a way looking, looking out for you, um, your best interests. Yeah. It, it's interesting just hearing you tell your story, Julie, and you know, what you went through. I think that's such a important time and challenge that you faced um, with the condition that you had you know, where you couldn't, modern science didn't have answers for you. And sometimes that can be very distressing and that can lead people into not good places. But you took that, you found meaning in that and you were able to build up yourself essentially in a lot of ways. And I can understand how your perspective might have changed after that in terms of life, death, and also the grieving process because you were essentially, and many times, facing death yourself, which is, um, and then now, you know, finding meaning and finding a new lease in terms of even just symbols you see around you, pennies and dimes, that's a common thing we we hear uh, often here too. And it's something that I think it's like like we like to say, sitting in the mystery of life and 
understanding that there's a lot we don't know. So it's almost better off to have a perspective of openness and willing to look at life from that positive angle. I kind of, I, I, I could see that. And so I'm curious, since I know you haven't had a dream yet of anyone who died, if you could have a dream tonight and remember it uh, of someone who has passed away, uh, who would that be and what would that dream look like? Uh, I think probably from what I've already said earlier, um, I would like to meet up with with my granny. Yes, go-go boots. Go <laughs> go uh, my go granny in Toronto. I'd love to, you know, just thank her um, for getting me going and getting me started and having me try to achieve things. That sounds great. And what kind of, what would the scenery be? Would it be in her house in Toronto? Would it be somewhere else by a waterfall? What are you, what are you thinking? I still remember her home in Toronto. Um, it was a three-story and she was on the main floor and she rented the two levels. So she was a really smart woman um, and was able to, on her own, accumulate assets, you know, which I'm, which is pretty special back at that time to have been able to do that. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to meet her in her living room or in her home, that home in Toronto. This has been amazing, I think, for me, I think very enriching as well um, to hear more about from you, Julie, and learn about your life and also to learn about Joshua's life, essentially. And I think you have you've shown a lot of courage in a lot of moments and especially what you've been through in your life, but also the great accomplishments, because, you know, being a woman, especially during that time and going to school and wanting to be educated and wanting to, you know, further your education, um, that shouldn't be taken too lightly uh, because we have lived in a relatively uh, patriarchal society. And then also what you, the challenges you face with your health conditions can't be understated uh, in terms of the severity and um, just being able to obviously have the courage and, and mindset to want to fix yourself and also have the faith in uh, God that he's there with you. Um, I want to thank you for coming on and, and having the courage to tell your story as well. And uh, it's it's been a pleasure and a treat. It's been a surprising honor for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I found it super interesting and, and just to hear the stories and, and to hear about your life and, and what you're going through. I think it's incredible. But um, yeah, we, we got to get going. But um, okay. We um, did you want to shout out your um, website where people can reach you if they need your services? JulieRennieParalegal.com. Excellent. Hopefully, we can send some business your way. Um, That'd but yeah, be nice. Uh, appreciate it. And again, um, oh yeah, and if people don't know, um, Julie also did my taxes, so I really uh, and I she did a fantastic <laughs> job. I mean, I ended up getting a ton of money back, so. That's my yeah, endorsement. You did good. Um, I did. You did good. So yeah, uh, I've been just doing wrap, it for a very long time. <laughs> well, yeah, and doing a phenomenal job at it. Just to finish up with our stuff, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you wanted to con- uh, contribute to our podcast, you can do so on the website griefdreams.ca. Uh, and if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the show with love and gratitude from us to you.
have questions. I have introduced myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation. <laughs>